Have you ever felt watched in your own home? With more cloud-connected devices and sensors around us all the time, we're generating a trail of data even when we're doing simple things like setting the thermostat or choosing a playlist. And while we might sometimes forget about the Internet of Things, design and user experience experts are constantly thinking about how to make these smart objects even smarter. Welcome to Science Island. I'm Leah Hitchings, along with Grant Birmingham, and today I'll be talking to Mike Kuniavsky, Principal Scientist and Head of User Experience Design at Park, about smart objects, artificial intelligence, and what our role should be in the Internet of Things. What we're going to see is this environment where it's going to be actually less common after a while for things to not be connected than for things to be connected. This is KACRLP 96.1 FM, and you're listening to Science Island, a dive into the world of scientific innovation and discovery. Next up, why the connected devices around us are getting smarter by tracking our every move, but still aren't as smart as a three-year-old when it comes to conversational skills, here on Science Island. So Grant, there is a lot of buzz about how the objects around us are getting smarter. And that's because they're part of um, this thing called the Internet of Things, which is a network of devices that are connected to the Internet and are sort of tracking us at all times. Um, Do you tend to notice the things in your life that are part of the Internet of Things or do they kind of fade into the background for you? Yes, the ones that work well fade into the background. And then I see these other ones like light bulbs that I could connect to my smartphone and refrigerators that can report things to me. And it seems sort of like overkill. Maybe the next generation will just be so seamless I won't even notice they're there. Yeah, and this is something that I'll be talking to Mike Kuniavsky later on about. He's a a leader in the... um, in the space for Internet of Things and is head of user experience for Park, which creates a lot of these objects. And he he and his team, um, which is part of the Innovation Services Group, they do a lot of thinking about how to make the design so seamless that you, the customer, don't ever have to think about the fact that the thing you're interacting with is learning from you. That's kind of a creepy thought. <laughs> right. And... And it should be sort of effortless, but a lot of times these things that verge into the artificial intelligence space, um, they aren't seamless at all. Um, There's a lot of effort that we have to put into teaching them. So one of the most common connected devices is the Nest thermostat. And it is something that uh, when you get it and you are reading the manual about how to set it up, it actually tells you that you need to act a certain way for a period of time in order for it to learn from you correctly. So you take on a teacher role. Uh, and then there's the privacy implications. Like, um, I know you have a uh, an Alexa. Mm-hmm. Is it just listening to you all the time or is it just listening when you <laughs> talk to it? Well, and this is one of the things about these smart devices is that they don't always work what we would consider to be perfectly. Um, So I'll notice 
anytime I say something close to the word Alexa, it lights up and starts listening to me. And I have accidentally put things on my grocery list just because I was talking about food. Um, I haven't accidentally purchased anything yet from Amazon, but I do think with young children in the house, it's just a matter of time before they figure out that they can say, Alexa, buy me a Barbie doll or purchase a Barbie doll, and one is going to show up in our mailbox. So this was a couple years ago. I had one of my writers come to me and say, I want to write about this Samsung TV, which listens to you all the time and it's like spying on you in your living room and I thought okay I mean I guess you could write that this thing could possibly spy on you but this is a crazy story and then fast forward six months and Samsung had to put out a warning telling people not to have private conversations in front of the TV because (laughs) they were sharing the audio files with a third party vendor wow Yeah. Did your writer get the TV? No. Okay. Yeah, I wouldn't keep that in my house. (laughs) (laughs) I need to check, actually, that it was Samsung. I'm I'm like 87% (laughs) sure, but before I resort to slander here. Sure. Yeah. Word of warning. Right. Yeah. If if you're listening to this, ask your Samsung TV right now if it's listening to you. (laughs) Yeah, and so these devices, they are tracking us, um, and that's part of their function. It's part of what they're supposed to do so that they can serve up strong predictive analytics and give you what you want. Uh, Another sort of aspect then to the privacy that's involved is the mountain of data that we are generating every day by simply interacting with these objects, maybe even forgetting that they were smart in the first place. And so it isn't sort of second nature to think about that data stream that we're always producing, and that is sort of growing larger and larger. Um, Grant, would you ever want to look at your self-generated data? Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever had Amazon just serve you an ad, which is so creepy? Like, it seems like it came from a conversation you had at lunch, and you came back, and there's the ad for you. Yeah. I want to know what's going on. (laughs) And I feel like I have a right to. This is obviously based off of my Google searches and hopefully not a conversation in front of a Samsung TV, but maybe I'd like to know what's going on. Sure. Well, let's bring on Mike Kuniavsky to help us shed a little light on things. Mike is principal scientist and head of user experience design at Park and an author of books about the Internet of Things. Mike, welcome to Science Island. Well, thank you very much. What I find just fascinating about this work is that the scale of it is so massive at this point, that the Internet of Things, all these connected devices, there are just so many of them in our world now. Um, Can you describe for us just what that looks like today, the Internet of Things? So the the Internet of Things, there's a lot of different definitions, but the one that I'm going to use is essentially about – uh, small computing devices that are connected to the internet that are embedded in everyday objects. And so one of the interesting things that has happened is, is that it's become so inexpensive, you know, thanks to essentially uh, cell phones miniaturizing all the components and making them much lower power and much more powerful. Uh, what we've uh, What that's allowed us to do is that's allowed us to build 
essentially intelligence and connected intelligence into everyday objects. And so the first things that get, uh, from a consumer's perspective, that get uh, essentially intelligence are the ones that are already digital. So things like televisions, things, uh, uh, you know, increasingly like thermostats, um, but also washers and dryers. Uh, but more importantly, those are kind of like the first wave. The next wave essentially is embedding this kind of intelligence into all kinds of other objects because it becomes uh, relatively easy. So you can see a lot of smart toys now. You can see toys are now uh, increasingly filled with essentially really, really powerful computers. And essentially what that means is that it makes every toy that has this essentially a kind of small robot, you know, a kind of small robot and computer. And when they're connected to the Internet, uh, what that does, you know, the, the, the beneficial side of that is that it allows things that are connected to the Internet to essentially keep getting better as they get older, which is kind of the inverse of the way that we expect objects to behave. Do you have any sense of, say, how many devices per human being on the planet we're sort of talking about now? I think that uh, the trajectory right now is, you know, if you look at the way the computers, uh, connected computers existed, say, 10 years ago in uh, in the U.S., there would be probably like roughly one per person or maybe uh, uh, a little bit more than that or, you know, probably around one where there were desktops, there were laptops, there were ATMs out in the world, which are computers, there were other things. So there's basically one per person. And then the smartphone revolution came, and so then we got something closer to two per person. And then smart TVs came, and we got something closer to three per person. And um, right now, I think the trajectory is around probably, I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, around 10 per person. It's rapidly heading towards around 100 per person, I would say, in, you know, five, uh, five to eight years. There's going to be 100 per person. And, uh, and then at some point, it's going to cross this threshold where it's going to be like plastic, where you don't count the number of things in your life that are made of plastic because there are so many, because it's embedded in all kinds of things that you don't even think are made of plastic. And so there's going to be this uh, this point where there are so many things in our environment. I mean, this is kind of, you know, uh, 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 th th this is kind of one of the scenarios that companies uh, that uh, especially companies that have a vested interest in making this happen talk about. But I think it's re roughly realistic that there's going to be kind of intelligence, uh, connected intelligence built into all kinds of things in our environment that we don't even know. You know, cars are already, uh, especially new cars, are already essentially connected devices. Every car already has a dozen or more computers in it, and they're increasingly co connected. And houses are becoming more connected. And so, you know, uh, uh, what we're going to see is this environment where it's going to be actually less common after a while for things to not be connected than for things to be connected. So it's sort of going to be a seamless experience in some ways. And while we have all these things sort of proliferating around us, we're also going to be dealing with a much larger amount of data that we're producing 
from all of these objects. How do you think people are thinking about that data now, and how do you think they should maybe start thinking about it? So uh, right now, as we go through our lives, we live a, leave a wake of data. You know, we whenever we transact with with, uh, with anything, we leave data, and some of that is is good. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's clearly value in um, recommender systems that understand us and are able to find things uh, for us, uh, whether they're movies uh, or music or uh, products that we would like that fit our personality types, that fit the things that we enjoy that we otherwise wouldn't have. Um, but there's also uh, this layer of data that's that's going out there uh, right now and uh, about everything else, about our behavior out in the world, uh, about the patterns of our behavior out in the world. And um, right now, it's being, until recently, it was too expensive to store that. You know, it was too expensive to store every uh, image from every security camera because there was just too many of them. They, they were mm-hmm. on 24 hours a day. All those images, you know, you know, 99.99999% of them are all identical. It was too much work to uh, to uh, to store that. It's it, it's too expensive to store that. It, it's, it's not anymore. You can store everything now. You can store every single uh, piece of information that people produce now. And what's, what, what that's doing is that's essentially allowing companies that do a lot of uh, essentially uh, what used to be called data mining to uh, look at all of that aggregate data and see patterns in the world that we ourselves wouldn't be able to see because we don't have access to these enormous amounts of data. Um, Credit card companies already do uh, do this. They will put a fraud alert on your credit card when they notice that something that the, a, a purchase has been uh, done that is outside the normal pattern of the way you buy things. So what that means is that means that they have to have made a personalized pattern for you of what is normal behavior for you, and then they uh, identify when something falls out of that, and then they put a red flag on it. And yours is going to be different than mine, and it's going to be different than my wife's. It's going to be different than the people down the street. So, yeah, the scale of it is sort of, it can be sort of mind-blowing. When you're doing your work um, with innovation services, do you kind of find yourself sometimes struggling to wrap your brain around it? (laughs) To some extent, yes. One of the interesting challenges right now in this is that in order to be able to make sense of all this data, uh, we essentially have been creating all of these algorithms that learn patterns. So when you hear people talking about uh, the rise of AI, so artificial intelligence is now a thing that people are talking about again after about 25 years. It's because all this data is now available for all of those algorithms to then make sense of. And the challenge with that is that the way that those algorithms make sense of it doesn't actually translate to something that we can understand. So uh, even the people that create the algorithms, because the algorithms are statistical and based on these enormous uh, uh, data sets, what happens is is that these um, AI algorithms, these machine learning pattern matching algorithms, and, you know, they can pattern match anything. They can pattern match uh, your uh, pathway through or, you know, people's pathways through a mall or, 
the way that um, uh, doctors prescribe certain medicines. Um, and, you know, when they have billions of, of data points to, uh, to do that, they create a uh, – uh, they create essentially a model of that. But that model d- isn't actually often understandable to even the people that created it. And so there's this layer of uh, kind of odd uncertainty in terms of using artificial intelligence right now because AI is incredibly powerful and it lets us make sense of all of these things uh, 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 that are out in the world. But at the same time, the way that it does it isn't always uh, clearly uh, understood. So it has to be managed very carefully. And that's one of the challenges that we have because we do a lot of AI work is how do you manage that? How do you both manage the algorithms, but also set the expectations of the people that are going to be using it and the people that are going to be putting data into it for how it works. And those are kind of ongoing challenges that we're exploring constantly. And you've had some really interesting things to say about how artificial intelligence actually can digitize experience. AI, especially coupled with the Internet of Things. So imagine this world where you have a lot of things that are tracking your behavior. You know, your phone is the classic one, but it's not just your phone. It, you know, it can be things in your house. It can be your televisions. It can be uh, your cars. And they're creating this data stream. They're creating this wake of data that, uh, uh, that, that, uh, you, uh, that you're leaving behind. Artificial intelligence comes in and essentially makes patterns of uh, your behavior over time across different kinds of activities so that it can, um, for example, recommend things to you. But the other thing is is that it's making a model of you. It's making essentially uh, a not necessarily a simulation of you as you understand yourself, but a simulation of your behavior out in the world because people are actually a lot more predictable than we uh, give ourselves credit for. And so... Uh, mm-hmm. um, and so that predictability then uh, – and, and we're really bad at predicting things about ourselves. You know, if you've ever tried to uh, uh, find – figure out someone's food sensitivity, you know, you can have all the data about every single thing that uh, someone has eaten for a month, and it's still really hard to figure out, you know, why they felt bad on this day and did not feel bad on this other day. That stuff is actually really easy for AI to do. AI can actually look at patterns across many people and, and look at patterns across a single person across time and identify kind of uh, uh, kind of normal versus abnormal versus uh, 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 predictable behavior. And that then becomes both a, a potentially valuable tool, but also becomes a potentially uh, challenging thing that the person who is the subject has to manage. Yeah, and there's sort of this um, image that all of us carry around in our heads about what AI is or what it should be. Do you find, you know, when you're just kind of talking to friends and family about your work projects, do you find that there are kind of common misconceptions about what AI does? I think um, one of the most common things is that AI tries to uh, either replace people or that it tries to, uh, or that it behaves the way that people behave, except it's a machine. So, you know, the, the kinds of things that we find really easy in life is, are incredibly hard for AI. You know, uh, you know uh, creativity is incredibly hard. Uh, essentially doing a lot of uh, 
understanding people's motivations, understanding why someone is doing something and then responding to that, that kind of like everyday relationship that, uh, that we have. It's incredibly difficult for AI. Um, but other kinds of things are incredibly easy for AI. You know, uh, if you look at a, um, a, uh, mapping, uh, algorithm, you know, such as used by one of the online mapping, uh, systems that like takes into account all of this traffic out there and it looks at all of the different possibilities and the entire history of traffic at this time on this day in these kinds of circumstances and then gives you a, uh, an optimal route that kind of gets you around all the traffic that is both happening now and all the traffic that's going to be happening when you get there. That's incredibly hard for humans to do. But now it's straightforward to, uh, uh, for machines. It's just a fundamentally different way of um, thinking about it. And it's a fundamentally different way of kind of looking at the, uh, uh, at the world. And so, you know, there, there are all kinds of... Uh, uh, misconceptions that, that people have uh, in, in, in my experience around chatbots uh, being able to kind of simulate humans. Chatbots are horrible human being simulators, especially most of the ones that are today. And it's this very fundamental thing where like a three-year-old is a much better conversationalist than <laughs> the most sophisticated <laughs> chatbot out in the world right now. And, and, and that's just because, you know, there are certain things that humans are really good at and AI is really terrible at. On the other hand, AI is increasingly uh, uh, taking kind of repetitive things, you know, anything from kind of accounting to anesthesia, where there are very, very rigorous, repetitive uh, activities that people do. And AI is really good at figuring out, like, what that space looks like and how to, to do that and being able to essentially be as good as a person, uh, well, be, you know, 90% as good as a person very quickly. And then, you know, one thing that you, the human beings can't do that AI can do is that, uh, once one AI has learned how to do that, it can teach others, uh, instantly. You know, essentially, uh, a robot, uh, there's this new discipline called cloud robotics where a robot in one place, you know, is taught how to do something. It then takes that information and it can uh, abstract it and upload it to a internet service where other robots will download it, and then they, they will suddenly get that skill. You know, it's a, it, it's it's this kind of magical thing that you know for a human being would require kind of an apprenticeship, but a robot just downloads a new software and it's and it's off and running. So it, there's really different. Like, it's just a very different way of being in the world. And so, you know, the term artificial intelligence, people stayed away from for a long time because it has all of these um, connotations that are not actually realistic uh, because it really is, has the implication that it's simulating a human being. But in reality, it's creating an entirely new kind of computational system that's not at all like people. And so that's often a, a challenge to, exp uh, to explain and to understand. And, and also, you know, we've, we sometimes forget it ourselves. And what happens is that, you know, we kind of assume that there's, some, that there's a thing that, you know, we can do and that we can kind of extend the AIs that we're working with to do that. And then we talk to one of the AI researchers at the lab and they kind of start chuckling and they're like, no, that's impossible. And, uh, or, or it's not going to be possible until we have, you know, a uh, hundred thousand times as much data as we, uh, as we have right now, and we're not going to be able to get that for a long time. So there's 
there are a lot of things that are like that. And a reminder, if you're just joining us, you're listening to KACR LP 96.1 FM. This is Science Island, and today I'm talking to Mike Kuniavsky about artificial intelligence and the Internet of Things. Uh, Mike, so it sounds like when it comes down to it, AI is maybe something not to be so much afraid of or apprehensive about, but to embrace if you want a better chatbot experience. <laughs> uh, yes. I, I mean, I think... One of the interesting things is that, like, it's a new technology, and technologies are often are uh, double-edged swords. So one of the things that we as a society have to do is we have to essentially negotiate with the technology about well, where are the people that make the technology, but also kind of with our own attitude towards the technology about what are the appropriate places to use it and, and how do we manage it. In the same way that, you know, we might limit how much exposure our kids have to television or kind of the kinds of things that uh, that they watch, um, you know, and that's something that kind of evolved over time. Uh, uh, you know, today I'm probably a lot more uh, watchful about my kids' television watching than my parents were uh, in the 1970s when I was the age that, the, uh, that my kids are. I have an encyclopedic knowledge of all the episodes of Green Acres, but I don't think my kids are going to have uh, comparable uh, knowledge. And that's essentially a cultural evolution of our relationship to a new technology, and AI is exactly like that. And so right now, we're at the very beginning part where we're starting to see a little bit here, we're starting to see a little bit there. You know, we have Alexa in our house from Amazon, or some people do, uh, or uh, Google Assistant, and uh, we tell it something, and sometimes it comes back with something that's a little weird, and we're like, okay, should I have actually said that thing earlier? And so we have to go like, okay, do I want this thing listening to me all the time, or what is it that I want to tell it? Um, in the same way that I think over a, a period, a lot of people had to uh, figure out how to deal with uh, advertising on the internet. That was essentially a new technology, and we had to kind of manage that. And then, you know, now there are tools for managing it. There are approaches to managing it. And so, artificial intelligence is going to be exactly uh, like that. I mean, it's it's a because. It really is. It's not a kind of a single thing. It's much more of a fundamental, deep tectonic shift in the uh, the capabilities of the technology, much in the way that the Internet was, much in the way that, like, suddenly you had access to this kind of infinite pool of information out there, some of which was really amazing and wonderful, which you would never have found it before, and some which was complete junk. And you had to, like, learn how to filter that. You had to learn, like, which of those things you wanted and didn't want. And so uh, AI is going to have a similar relationship. Like, you know, you know we're going to have junk AIs, and we're like, oh, that thing, you know, it's, it's trying to talk to me again. No, you know, stop it. Or, uh, you know, this recommender system has completely, uh, uh, has a completely botched model of, of what I want or what I want to go. You know, it's, uh, uh, it's always pointing me to, uh, fast food restaurants just because I went to one fast food restaurant that one time and I, and I don't want that. So stop it car, you know, stop pointing me toward, uh, uh, towards, you know, uh, hamburger places. You know, I think that it's going to be an, an evolution as the objects around us start to, uh, develop these kinds of, uh, behaviors that are enabled by these underlying connected Internet of Things technologies. And so that's why when I talk about the Internet of Things, I'm always talking about AI because I think those two things are really uh, completely locked together. And 
because the, the, the two technologies really are complementary. One collects the data, one makes sense of the data. Well, Mike, you've certainly helped us understand some of the sort of invisible technologies that are around us all the time. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. My pleasure. So that's all we have today for this episode of Science Island. This show is hosted and produced by myself, Leah Hitchings, along with Grant Burningham. If you have a show idea or suggestion, feel free to tweet us at Sci Island. We'll see you here next week.